there were many moments where I felt invisible. From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. When you're in a boardroom and you make a comment and then your male counterpart makes the same comment and people respond positively to his comment and you're like, didn't I just say that? That's Kim Davis, an executive vice president of the NHL, the National Hockey League. She wasn't a fan of hockey growing up in Chicago. After graduating from Spelman College and HBCU in Atlanta, she had a career in finance, was with the CEO advisory firm Teneo, and did some consulting work for the league. They liked her so much, they asked her to sign on. I spoke with her recently at the NHL's offices in New York about her work to grow the league's fan base, how she's drawn inspiration from her family, and about political controversies in sports in the Trump era, including how the league responded when J.T. Brown, a player for the Tampa Bay Lightning and one of only about 30 black players in the league, raised his fist during the national anthem last fall. Conversation in a minute on women rule. Produced by Politico in partnership with our founding partners, Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. This episode is brought to you by our supporting sponsor, Chevron. Chevron is proud to partner with TechBridge Girls, an organization on a mission to inspire girls to pursue STEM careers through hands-on learning. By supporting after-school programs, Chevron is helping TechBridge Girls get more girls interested in STEM. I wanted to start off with the work you are doing at the NHL. You're an executive vice president, but you focus on something very specific within the league. Your area of expertise is on social impact, growth initiatives, and legislative affairs. So what exactly does that mean? It's a mouthful, right? (laughs) Right. SGL, as we now refer to it, is really a compilation of a number of departments that we brought together. Um, So things that people would be familiar with, corporate social responsibility, community relations, all of our grassroots youth hockey efforts, legislative affairs, government Mm -hmm. affairs, um, and ways in which we have to think about the future of our game, the growth of our game through diversity and inclusion. So what, explain to our listeners who, you know, most of our listeners are women, uh, professional women, what are you trying to do for hockey? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's really exciting because honestly, I have to say, I I was not a hockey fan. I did not grow up with the sport of hockey, even though I grew up in Chicago, um, which is cold. Uh, <laughs> cold and one of the original six teams within uh, the National Hockey League. Um, but as I said to the commissioner. For me and the community that I lived in in Chicago, hockey wasn't a sport that uh, was necessarily open to or perceived to be open, I should say, to my community. So what we're trying to achieve here is to begin to understand and to think about what the future of the sport needs to look like. When you look at demographic shifts in our country, both in the United States and North America, we know that um, new audiences to hockey have to get comfortable with the sport. When you speak about that, so kind of historically, obviously dominated uh, the NHL men, mostly white men. Is there anything specific on gender or getting more women that you guys have focused on so far? Well, I mean, if you really think about the 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 game of hockey, the sport of hockey, you've heard for years um, people refer to hockey moms, 
right? Um, and, and I think that that's sort of been, been used in a very pejorative way. But a hockey mom has so many connotations. For an example, my dear friend, Roz Brewer, who is the number two at Starbucks, um, and she was a classmate of mine at Spelman. She and I were having a conversation six months ago, and she said, you know, my son, John, was a big hockey kid um, in Atlanta, where they lived. And she said, I got up many mornings at five o'clock and took him to, you know, to the ice rink. Uh, he is now uh, grown and out of college. She said, but hockey, we should not think of hockey moms as sort of this traditional sort of Ozzie and Harriet model <laughs> of, you know, moms getting in the vans and taking them. She said, you know, I was, I had him in, in the car with me on the way to uh, the airport, dropping him off and having someone pick him up. So I think um, the idea of what a hockey mom looks like uh, is an important notion for us to expand. Secondly, um, women are, are real participants in the sport. Um, they are sponsors. They are leading sponsorships for organizations. Um, and they love the sport. Um, so we have to do a better job of amplifying uh, the fact that women uh, are, are, are both uh, participants, um, players in the sport, um, sponsors, um, as well as fans. So you said when you started this gig, you weren't, <laughs> you weren't historically a hockey fan, not yeah. to be divisive yes. to start this out, but have you, do you have a team now? Do you go on the ice yourself? Well, I don't go on the ice, even <laughs> though I can ice skate, but I, I can't say I can play hockey. Um, and I can't say I have a team. I have 31 teams. How about that? <laughs> Very um, diplomatic. <laughs> <laughs> but what I will say is that I have come to truly um, enjoy the live game. Uh, and I think uh, it, it, this is another point about the, the importance of of, t of trying the sport because um, when you go to a game and you experience it, you fall in love with it. The beauty of the sport, the the speed um, of the sport, and it and it breaks down those historical notions of, you know, guys fighting with no teeth. I mean, these are some really handsome guys, by the way. Um, and we're doing more to take the mask off, right? So you can see who's who's really behind the mask. Um, I, I heard a statistic this week that the majority of our new players are under 24 years old. So these are Gen Zs, right? So the way they are going to think about our sport just as players is going to going to uh, shift and uh, has shifted significantly already. You know their orientation to social media, um, uh, their comfort with difference because they've grown up with that, even if they've come from different countries. Um, their, their comfort, I think the, the most important word is their comfort with, with differences. And so we've got to make sure that we represent that well. All right. I want to take a step back mm -hmm. uh, from kind of what you're doing now to talk about your background in business, because I found it pretty fascinating. You came into the NHL position with virtually no experience uh, or familiarity with hockey. Uh, you went to college. You got a degree in economics from Spelman College, a historically black women's college in Atlanta. Talk a little bit about that. I believe four generations of your family have gone to Spelman. Yeah, yeah. So um, Spelman has a rich history uh, in, in my family and in, in the African-American experience. It was founded in, in 1881 um, in the basement of Friendship Baptist Church in Atlanta, um, by Rockefeller's um, sisters. 
And it was um, first started as a nursing school. And my great-grandmother's sister was in the first graduating class. So that was pretty amazing. So, you know, back in the early 60s, my grandfather has a picture um, of me running across the campus of Spelman. And as far back as I can remember, I was going to Spelman College. Um, my mom didn't go to Spelman. She went to college in Chicago. Um, but that, that history of Spelman was really embedded. And even though I graduated from high school in California and had been accepted into both Yale and Stanford, um, there was no question that Spelman was where I was going. So, yeah, that history is pretty rich. So you, you go to Spelman, and after that, you went pretty directly into the business world, right? Did you have any idea then that you wanted to have this focus on social responsibility and inclusivity in the workplace? No, I mean, service um, uh, and being a servant leader uh, has been part of my DNA my entire life. Um, and it goes back to, to that history in my family. Um, but I, I really attribute that, um, that DNA to my grandfather, my, my mother's father. Um, who was an incredibly innovative, service-minded individual in Chicago. He did not have the opportunity to go to college because he had to take care of his family, but he sent all six of his siblings to college. Um, and he was just a, a leader. He was a natural leader. And um, so I would follow him around all over Chicago. He was the, the head of a, a, a Chicago-wide boys and girls leadership initiative that he started, Young Men's um, Association. And so I, you know, I just watched him lead. Uh, he was a, a leader in our church. And, and the black church is really a foundation of leadership in so many ways. And so I would say that many of my early leadership opportunities came through through church. So it's not surprising that I ended up in that kind of area. But I started my career in finance. I mean, I economics degree. Um, and my grandfather always said, service is part of your DNA. You're going to do that regardless. But make sure you have uh, a, a technical area that you uh, are proficient in. So you go from a majority black college uh, in Atlanta to JPMC, Teneo, the world of finance in general, which are clearly really male-dominated, white-dominated spaces. Were there moments where you felt invisible because of your gender or your skin? Or can you talk a little bit about how you navigated in the beginning? Mm -hmm. So let me just say, uh, and I'll answer that question directly, that um, you know, I've, I've grown up around fearless female leaders. Um, my father's mother, Dr. Rose Butler Brown, was the first African-American woman and the second woman to graduate from Harvard's School of Education in 1929. And she told many stories about being one of two women, and the other woman, who was a white woman, didn't, wouldn't even study with her. And despite that, she graduated second in, in, that, in that program. And so between her stories and my grandfather's stories growing up in Jim Crow South, they were never bitter and they were never, they were fearless about justice and equality and taught me to to stand in my truth and to be comfortable with everyone. So even though I went into those um, white male oriented environments, I never felt less than. And yes, there were many moments where 
I felt invisible, and I was invisible, and it's the story of every senior woman, whether it's a woman of color or a white woman, when you're in a boardroom and you make a comment and then, you know, your male counterpart makes the same comment and people, you know, respond positively to his comment and you, you're like, didn't I just say that? <laughs> <laughs> so many times. Yeah. So that, and that still happens. And I hear women tell those stories um, all the time. It's, it's less than it was 37 years ago when I started, but we still, we still have those moments. How did you handle it or what advice would you give to the women that are still facing those kind of moments or those flashpoints? Yeah. So I, I often say your, your, your political and business acumen is more art than science. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think um, the, the art is um, staying true to who you are, but also picking your moments. And so what I, what I say to women is always make sure that you remain strong and fearless and you don't cross those boundaries of respect. But sometimes it's not, it's not worth that fight. For the for the broader war, right? But then there are moments when you have to just call it and name it. And there have been many times when I have actually sat in those meetings and I picked my moment where I, where I would say, "Didn't I just say that?" And then everyone is you know scrambling and fumbling, but they remember that. And the next time it doesn't happen. So I say, pick your moments, pick your battles. Um, not every not every fight is worth worth a fight, but sometimes you do have to fight. <laughs> <laughs> well, talk about, so, so you were in a kind of hard finance, and how did you make that shift, or what did you see at J.P. Morgan that you you wanted to change? Yeah. I, I came up uh, during the, the real serious mergers and acquisitions phase of financial services uh, in, the, in the early 90s through the 2000s, and so... Um, I saw it as a huge opportunity because you could reinvent yourself with every merger and acquisition. And so um, in the mid-90s, uh, I was fortunate enough to have an incredible um, sponsor. And I, I'm sure you've had many women who talk about the difference between mentors and sponsors, but for sure somebody who has the juice um, to make it happen, has the power to make it happen. And I was lucky enough to have uh, in John Farrell, who, who passed last year, uh, uh, someone who was a true sponsor. And he was the head of human resources for um, then Chase. Uh, and I was on the private banking side, and he said, uh, I would love to have you move over to the corporate strategy HR side because you come with a business background and having someone with that um, expertise will bring a lot of credibility to the function. So John actually moved me from the P&L. And people thought I was crazy. Were you nervous Moving that people from, weren't going to take you seriously? or that it You know, I, maybe I was young and naive, but I wasn't. <laughs> so <laughs> looking back, I was probably should have been. Um, but I, I saw it as a huge opportunity. Um, and, and to have somebody like John, you know, who was a sponsor, helping to navigate my career. And so the advice I give to many women is, you know, when you can take 
take a calculated risk like that when you know that you have somebody who's going to help navigate your career. Take that, take that risk, um, and don't be afraid to change. Uh, and I knew I could always go back into that that area of the business, at least for the for the first couple of years. You know, after you're out of the business for a few years, it's really hard to transition back in. But once I moved, I realized that I could probably have more cultural impact on the organization and people that were on the business side by being in many of the the roles that I assumed after that. And now, a message from Chevron. How do you get more girls in STEM? Right now, women make up almost 25% of STEM jobs, and Chevron wants to grow the number of women in STEM careers. They've partnered with TechBridge Girls, an organization that's all about helping young women develop essential STEM skills through hands-on learning, field trips, and engaging with STEM professionals. Chevron is proud to support their after-school programs and help celebrate positive role models. Together, TechBridge Girls and Chevron are on a mission to inspire more girls to pursue careers in STEM. I was reading last night about your career, and I think one of the interviews you gave was you saw that it wasn't just women, but particularly black women that were disadvantaged um, at the bank or just in, in business in general. Talk yeah. a little bit about that. And and not, not so much disadvantaged. It was that um, we had not um, focused on the fact that the experiences that women of color were having were very different than the experiences that white women were having. And so being intentional about understanding the data behind that helped us to have a much more customized strategy. So I was in the investment bank at the time, and uh, we were bringing a lot of women in, uh, women of color, white women, into the investment bank, both at the coming out of undergrad as well as MBA school. But when we looked at the data around their promotions um, and their ascension, what we saw was that the glass ceiling for women of color was at a very different level than it was for white women. So for women of color, sort of that movement from being an associate coming in as an MBA to the next level to VP was really the first glass ceiling. For white women, they were moving very rapidly to VP, but their first glass ceiling was really from VP to SVP. So, to, you know, to really make the organization understand that, we 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 actually sort of illustrated this by showing that for women of color, we had the glass ceiling, but that the next level was like the cement ceiling, and then the the real level into sort of really senior roles was like titanium, right? And so, you know, you envision titanium, you I mean, you can't even, you can't penetrate it at all. And so that really um, got the attention of senior leaders. Um, and so we started then focusing on very definitive mentoring programs for women of color, um, pairing them up with very, very senior leaders so that they could get exposed. We know that for sponsorship, people have to feel some kind of symbiotic relationship. And for women of color, there just weren't people at those levels that they that look like them. Mm-hmm. And and so just being much more intentional about the career trajectories and the um, and the developmental pathways for women of color. Talk just a little bit about that, because I don't know that on this podcast we've talked, we've t- we talk a lot about mentorship and how you can help others, but you've kind of intentionally used the word sponsorship and I think a di- differentiate between the two. Yeah. For me, um, mentorship is more psychosocial, where you have someone who um, is willing to 
you know, talk to you, um, to help coach you through those difficult moments in your career, to give you great career advice. And that is critically important. Somebody who, um, both inside and outside the organization, who can can really help you understand how to grow and develop. Sponsorship for me is, is, is very different. That is somebody who actually has the power and the political clout to help navigate your career and help move you whether it's in their organization, so they you know, have a, a, a big domain organization, or they um, have the connections to network you into other parts. And that's what women, that's what women and people of color need more of, are those um, informal networks that help them navigate the organization and move into uh, positions and to, to accelerate their careers. So you were a consultant first for the NHL, and then they offered you a job. <laughs> what? what comp- walk us through that process. <laughs> a well, little bit. It, it was a it was a cool process. So um, the NHL um, happened to be one of my clients, um, and I did some some really interesting culture work here. Um, to sort of look at all of those social assets that I now have responsibility for, and to um, to help rationalize how they can be more effective in growing the sport um, and made some recommendations to the to the commissioner and the deputy commissioner and um, and they they obviously liked those recommendations <laughs> or maybe not and they they thought that I, I could bring some value and so we started having conversations about that and um, and I'm here what was there something that compelled you to say yes to this that's often I mean, it was a shift right you're in consulting you probably mm-hmm. have multiple clients you're you know it's a little bit different than working for just one organization. What was the kind of the turning point or the thing that clicked and said, yes, I yeah. want to do it? Well, you can probably see from just looking at my career journey that I either I'm crazy or I like change. <laughs> um, and so I, 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 I thrive on change. Um, I love taking dis- disparate pre- pieces and, um, and areas that need um, – Sort of being to, to be rationalized and pulled together, um, and coming up with vision, mission, strategy. That I just I love that, and so I saw this as an opportunity to do that. Number one, number two, um, you know, just a sport of hockey. And as I consulted with hockey, I learned so much about. Um, the great things that hockey had done and just had not talked about it. And part of it is the the culture of hockey being very humble. We talk about the players being humble, but there's a culture of not bragging, not really talking about what you do, just doing it. Um, and and part of that is, is really nice. But in this new world, we have to talk about what we do so people don't then put their own assumptions on what you do or what you don't do. Um, the history of, of, of African Americans in hockey um, is an untold story in the league. Um, and it was a story that when I learned of it, I was like, we have to get this story out because so many minority communities and women, when they see this, they will become more engaged and more compelled to want to know more about hockey. And so that's one of many examples that I saw and I felt like I can actually, you know, help make a difference in, in, in the future of this sport. So you're, you're not the only minority woman in an executive role with a sports league, but there aren't a ton of you. Uh, I think it's actually the NHL that has more women in executive vice president roles than any other league out there right now. We're proud of that. What advice do you have to give to women in similar positions who are going to be one of the few women in the room? 
Yeah. Um, I often say that when um, when men or people generally say to someone who uh, is part of a minority community that I don't see your color, I don't see your gender, that that's not true. I want you to see my color, I want you to see my gender because that's who I am, right? I don't want you to judge me on that. I don't want you to have preconceived notions about that, but I am who I am and that part of that dimension of me makes makes me who I am and, and, and hopefully makes me special. So what I say to women is that that is, that is it. That is what it is, right? I can't run from that. But we don't have to lean on that. Um, just be bold and fearless and, um, and, and know your craft and um, push the boundaries um, and, um, and, and use that art versus that science um, as you think about how to navigate. Um, and I think you find that um, more often than not, um, men are very open. Often when you're around a board uh, table, we get in our own heads about what we shouldn't say or, you know, we play it back and forth in our head. And I've done this a million times. So I have to constantly tell myself this, that don't just say it. Because often somebody else says, and you're like, I was about to say that, right? So we, we, we get in our own heads often. Um, so don't get in your own head. Um, you know, say, say what you think. Um, mean what you say. Um, know when the whole, know when the fold. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and often you, you'll be surprised at um, how embraced you actually are. So I want to circle back to the present and the NHL. Um, part of your portfolio is government um, and government affairs. And clearly we are in a very divisive political time. Uh, in my coverage of politics and sports for a long time, uh, I've never seen more divisiveness and more actual just action by athletes. But the president has made it clear that he's not a fan of football players protesting and taking a knee during the national anthem. How is the NHL handling kind of the meta politics and sports right now and then kind of these the kind of more of a granular effect of like the president and different sports leagues getting mm -hmm. kind of at each other's throats yeah we we've often said that um the sport of hockey um is is apolitical um but in saying that, we, we also have to acknowledge that we, we have to have a point of view about who we are and what we stand for as a set of principles. And, and I think we um, have gotten very comfortable with that. Um, I said earlier that our sport and our culture is one of being quiet and being more humble. Um, and, and more servant leadership. And so we had the, the example um, of J.T. Brown um, a couple of years ago um, with the fist. Um, and uh, there was a conversation uh, really pretty much initiated by J.T. that was really about what, what's the substance of what I'm trying to achieve here. And the substance of it was what can I do to actually affect change? Uh, and so the outcome of that was that he um, actually developed a program in the community uh, in partnership with the police to not just, you know, have a fist, but to actually show action in what we can do to make change around the issues that are important 
with regard to equality. So I think what, what you see in the sport of hockey is, is less about the symbols and more about the, the substantive action of, of, of things. Um, and and I, I actually think that that's a smart way to do it. Um, if I could analogize that to many of the conversations that we have broadly in society about diversity, and the first question that people ask is, how, how many people do you have in senior roles, or how many people do you have in this role? And I often say, and when I ran diversity um, at Teneo, I would advise clients around this, make sure that before you talk about representation that you actually have the kind of culture that will allow people to both survive and thrive. Because you can bring a million people in an organization, but if the, the culture isn't welcoming, if people don't have the opportunity to develop, then you're going to lose them as fast. as. And often we look at bringing people in, but we don't look at who's going out the back door. So I think that's, that's the way the league is, is attacking a lot of these political issues. How does that work, though? I mean, there's been some controversies about with what's happening in the NFL and some of these other leagues and then kind of the NHL deciding to go to the White House at the same time. I mean, do you feel like you the NHL is out of step with where some of the other leagues have been in terms of supporting some of the protests that their players have decided to do? Yeah, I think the league has allowed the players to make a decision about how they how they want to show up in that um, and, and not taking a, a particular position on that and not penalizing, but they've allowed the players to decide among themselves who will go and, and who won't. Uh, and I think that's probably a smart, smart way to do it. And not judging who decides to go or or not, but to make you know it's a, it's a team sport, and so the team decides as opposed to the ownership deciding. All right, well, Kim, thank you so much. Thank you. Our show was produced by Jenny Ahmed. Our booker is Jessica Andrews. Dave Shaw is the executive producer of Politico Audio. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave us a review. And please share our episodes on social media. And follow me on Twitter and Instagram at apalmerdc. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866. 